have to somehow prevent people from watching the attack against them, which is very serious. Uh, it's serious on just straight economic grounds, but even more serious if you think of the other plans, like the militarization plans or the plans to destroy the environment, uh, all of which may really literally bring the species to an end. Uh, but you certainly don't want people to pay attention to that or the tax cuts for the rich or, or you know, the other efforts to silence domestic independence. None of this is proper to look at. That's Noam Chomsky, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Noam Chomsky on censorship, free speech, and the media. States want to dominate the narrative, its version of events. There are two basic models. One follows Aldous Huxley, the other George Orwell. The latter is best known for 1984. Big Brother is brutal. He wields a big stick, while Huxley uses a much softer carrot. Censorship is self-imposed, because the journalist knows the boundaries of permissible thought. Essential assumptions are embedded unconsciously, so they don't even rise to the level of being challenged. The Huxley model is more subtle and relies on persuasion. Orwell is straight-out coercion. Sing the tune I've told you to, or else. Our guest today is Noam Chomsky, the legendary scholar-activist who's been a leading voice for peace and social justice for many decades. The New Statesman calls him the conscience of the American people. Author of scores of books, among his latest are Consequences of Capitalism, Chronicles of Dissent, and Notes on Resistance. He spoke in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 2002 at a special event marking the 25th anniversary of South End Press. In this never-before-broadcast, Chomsky begins by recounting his own experience with censorship with his co-author Ed Herman. And now, Noam Chomsky. Well, the uh, late 70s, when South End got started, were uh, kind of a low point in the uh, opportunities to... Uh, write and in other ways address general audiences. Uh, the major journals of the 1960s had collapsed. Uh, Ramparts and Liberation were gone, a couple others. Uh, there had been a few mainstream journals that had been open to dissident opinion, but those options had been mostly closed. There were some publishing opportunities, but they were pretty limited. When South End came along, later Z Magazine, uh, that uh, made quite a substantial difference and a major contribution to the uh, growing popular movement. Just on a personal note, the first couple of books that I published with South End, uh, first one was with Ed Herman, uh, Political Economy of Human Rights. The next one was Fateful Triangle. Others, later years, Political Economy of Human Rights was 1979. Uh, both of those books had sort of interesting histories which reflect the nature of the times. Uh, Ed and I had, in fact, written an earlier version of Political Economy of Human Rights. It was published by a mainstream publisher in uh, 1974, 
but the publisher was owned by a conglomerate, uh, Warner Communications, which is now part of Time, AOL, Warner, some bigger thing. I lost track. They published 20,000 copies of it. A couple of ads came out. A senior executive of the corporation saw the ads and didn't like them, took a look at the book, and flew out the window or something like that, uh, ordered the publisher to terminate publication. Uh, there was, they refused. It was a long hassle. Uh, the end result was that the conglomerate put the publisher out of business, uh, destroyed not only that book but all their stock totally, that was not considered a free speech issue in the United States. None of the free speech advocates thought there was anything wrong with this. After all, it's not state censorship. It's just corporate censorship, uh, and that doesn't interfere with freedom of speech. So the fact that a, total, a publisher was put totally out of business, all their books destroyed, to prevent distribution of a single book has barely been mentioned. In fact, about the only person I can think of who's mentioned it is Ben Bagdikian and his... Media Monopoly, the various editions of that, has brought it up. Uh, It was brought to the attention of people who are very active in writing about free speech, but they correctly, from their point of view, said there's no issue. Uh, Well, that tells you something not only about the times, but about the principles. South End came along, and we were able to publish a much uh, expanded edition of it. There's a principle of journalism which is you never mention anything that breaks, departs from the party line. You've got to keep to that rigidly. Uh, so you won't find mentions of it in the mainstream, but material's there. The second book also has an interesting history. I happened to think about this history a couple of days ago when I was reading the New York Review. There was an article there by the head of the uh, Center for Human Rights at the Kennedy School, Carr Center, about uh, genocide and about the failure of the United States to deter genocide. What's wrong with us that makes it so difficult for us to deter genocide when we see it? If if you look at the examples, you can figure out the operational meaning of the term genocide. It means some crime that we can attribute to others. Uh, It doesn't matter what crime it was very much. In fact, you can say anything you like about it. You can make up stories or anything you want. Uh, But as long as we're not involved in it or we're not implementing it, then it can count as genocide. And uh, many examples are given. Uh, Some of the, for example, the fact that uh, the uh, allegation that the uh, Serbians uh, carried out mass murder of 200,000 people uh, in the early 90s just as a research project, you might want to look up the scholarly literature to find the sources for that. But it really doesn't matter. As long as you're criticizing someone else, it's fine. Don't need any evidence. Say anything you want. Uh, and it qualifies as genocide. Uh, there are other cases of, just since the number is given, of 200,000 people killed where the evidence is actually much better, but they're not mentioned. Uh, one of them, in fact, is discussed in the political economy of human rights. Uh, by that time, uh, the United States, and with Britain's help, uh, had succeeded in killing off about 200,000 people in East Timor, uh, but that doesn't count uh, because we did it. So therefore, it doesn't enter the animal annals of genocide. I don't use the term much myself, but in that case, it may be legitimate. Uh, that was maybe a third or a quarter of the population, and it got much worse. Later, the United States and Britain continued to support the slaughter right through the bitter end, uh, mid-September 1999. But that doesn't count 
because it violates a principle. Uh, we were responsible for it consciously with eyes open, uh, therefore it couldn't be reported, uh, and it doesn't enter the history of genocide. There was another case which we couldn't mention in that book because it was just about beginning then. We talked about the early stages. Another 200,000 people in Central America, roughly, uh, for which the United States is directly responsible. Uh, therefore, that doesn't enter. Uh, and we can list lots of others. But some do enter when you can claim with whatever evidence, in this case none, uh, that 200,000 people were killed by a, an official enemy. Uh, one case that is discussed in the article where the term genocide is indeed commonly used and with some justification is the case of Cambodia, which we also discussed in that book. There the term is not, perhaps not unreasonable. In fact, there is one governmental study, a stu uh, study by a government, an independent government, of what happened in Cambodia. As far as I'm aware, the only place where it's ever discussed is in work that Ed and I did. Uh, the reason is because of the title, which gives it away. It's called The Decade of Genocide. This was the government of Finland, incidentally, carried out a study of what they called The Decade of Genocide, 1969 to 1979. But since it's The Decade of Genocide, it can't be mentioned, uh, because that includes the years 1969 to 1975, uh, when the United States was responsible for the atrocities and the massacres. So therefore, that's out. Uh, in order just to reconstitute the destruction. But that's all out of history because of the same principle. It's attributed to the wrong agent. Uh, what's in history is what uh, fits. What doesn't matter whether it happened, but as long as it sort of fits the story that's within history. Uh, I won't talk about the other book, Fateful Triangle, because I don't want to harp on this, but uh, let me just mention that those two books, first ones of mine that happened to be published by South End, uh, they're both about topics which are right in the headlines now, uh, international terrorism and uh, West Asia, what's called the Middle East and countries that are committed to a kind of a Eurocentric bias elsewhere in the world. It's called West Asia properly. And of course, they're all over the headlines today, both of those topics. Uh, um, say this morning's front page headlines uh, tell you about new uh, plans for uh, uh, nuclear war fighting uh, which are uh, justified on the basis of the um, threat of international terrorism. There are other things that they don't tell you, however. Uh, one thing that they tell you, don't tell you is that the plans aren't new. In fact, they're old. Uh, it's true that they're a little bit modified, but they've been around for a long time, even if the press and the journals decided it wasn't a nice idea to publish them, though they knew about them. The uh, plans were initiated in March 1990, immediately after the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, which uh, made it very clear that there is no longer any deterrent. Okay, That was the crucial thing that took place in, uh, when the Berlin Wall fell and sort of the end of the junior superpower. Uh, so now there's no deterrent, and uh, Pentagon war planning changed very quickly by a couple of months later, by March 1990. Um, well, this is public, incidentally. Uh, it shifted from uh, what's called uh, planning uh, to attack what's called in Pentagon jargon a weapons-rich environment, that's the Soviet Union, they're weapons-rich, to a target-rich environment, which is the rest of the world. It's not weapons-rich, but target-rich. 
Uh, primarily uh, what's called the South. That's not a geographical term. That means anybody outside of uh, uh, the United States and its uh, clients and allies. So to target the South, the pretext shifted from the Russians are coming, which had been the pretext up until November 1989, to a new reason, namely the technological sophistication of third world powers. Uh, that's why we needed this huge military system, including uh, a nuclear system, which did have to be modified, uh, because now that we were, uh, 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 now that it was aimed at a target-rich environment, you needed different kind of uh, devices, mini nukes, and uh, so on. In fact, the kind that are being discussed in the uh, new nuclear plans that are uh, being added now. Uh, it has to be targeted what they called smaller countries uh, capable of producing weapons of mass destruction. Well, who is capable of producing weapons of mass destruction? Uh, any country that has a high school chemistry laboratory <laughs> is capable of producing weapons of mass destruction. In fact, it's not that hard. So that's a pretty broad category. And they're to be targeted with uh, nuclear weapons, including mini-nukes. Uh, uh, it's true that uh, uh, there's a change. Uh, the uh, new programs that are on the front page now uh, do uh, apparently uh, intensify what had already existed. Uh, and it is uh, true that it's under the pretext of international terrorism. Uh, but I think the word pretext should be stressed. It was going on when there was no pretext of international terrorism. Uh, though it's worth remembering that uh, uh, the reason we... Uh, in 1979 that Ed Herman and I talked about uh, state terrorism is because it was one of the major problems of the world. Uh, and within a year, two years, it had become the centerpiece of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, the war on terror, so-called, was declared 20 years ago uh, in very much the same terms it is today, and it's been redeclared periodically since without very much change. Uh, the 200,000 corpses in Central America are one of the uh, indices of what that war has meant. Uh, topics which would be discussed, in fact headlined, uh, if there was a press or journals that were interested in the topic of the war on terror, uh, for pretty obvious reasons, it's not ancient history. And in fact, the same people are involved who were uh, carrying out the so-called war on terror then. Uh, the intensification of the nuclear weapons programs, that's the headlines on the front pages today, is part of a larger story. Uh, September 11th was also used as a pretext to sharply escalate other military programs. Uh, in my opinion, the most dangerous of them is the militarization of space program, which has also been going on for years. It's under the rubric of missile defense. Uh, but whenever you hear the word defense, what you should understand is offense, uh, and in fact both adversaries and advocates recognize that even the small component called missile defense is an offensive weapon. There's no dispute about that. Uh, the goal is quite explicit. Again, you can read it in high-level government documents, Clinton's Space Command, uh, the, uh, or strategic analysts who write in major journals. Uh, the goal is what they call hegemony, uh, that is uh, protecting U.S. In commercial interests and investments and the analogies given to navies in earlier years, uh, which had the same 
purpose, but now we go on to the next frontier, space, and that one the U.S. all monopolized, it's assumed, because it's so far ahead that there won't be any competitors. Well, in order to, I won't go into this, but in order to monopolize it, you have to have massive offensive capacities. Everybody realizes this. Uh, They have to be on hair-trigger alert. Uh, That raises very uh, rapidly the risk of uh, uh, destruction, quite apart from calling forth responses from others. And that's understood. There's no disagreement that all of this raises uh, the risks seriously, just as the current plans do. That's understood, too. Uh, But it really doesn't matter. In this case, it happens to be total destruction. So like anything goes wrong, it's finished. Uh, But uh, it doesn't matter much because hegemony, the announced goal, is much more highly valued than survival uh, under... uh, the governing values. Nothing particularly novel about that. It's the scale of the consequences that's novel. Well, that, again, is what ought to be in the headlines, uh, including the background. It's not new. It's greatly enhanced under the pretext of international terrorism and a very vulgar exploitation of the uh, fear and concern of the population, which offers a kind of window opportunity to ram through all sorts of programs that uh, powerful systems uh, want to implement but can't if the public's paying attention. Uh, What's the connection of all of this to terrorism? Well, approximately zero. Uh, There are terrorist threats to the United States. There's no doubt about that and plenty of terrorist threats to the rest of the world. Uh, But just keeping the threats to the United States, they're real. Uh, Some of them were on the front pages, too, in the last couple of days. Here's uh, Xeroxed a couple. Uh, New York Times had a front page story on March 7th about a real threat, uh, namely what are called dirty bombs, uh, radioactive materials that are in wide use in the United States could be turned into, at least theoretically, it's not easy to do in practice, but could in principle be turned into weapons of terror that might kill few people, uh, but even though only a few people would be killed, they would spread uh, panic and produce severe economic damage. Uh, what they're talking about is bars of radioactive cobalt, which are used to irradiate food and uh, medical devices and various other things like that. Well, how, how does, say, missile defense or nuclear weapons uh, deal with that? Well, you can figure it out. Uh, And there are plenty of other dangers of that kind, uh, but they're not addressed by the new military systems, nor are they intended to be. Um, We kind of like anniversaries, as you know, and this happens to be uh, the 40th anniversary this month uh, of John F. Kennedy's uh, initial use of chemical weapons in South Vietnam. The authorization of chemical weapons in South Vietnam was actually earlier. Uh, It was in November 1961 that the client regime using U.S. helicopters was equipped with uh, uh, facilities for uh, using for chemical warfare. Uh, And in March 1962, uh, it was publicly announced uh, that uh, U.S. pilots were flying planes that were involved in strafing and combat missions against the South Vietnamese. Uh, The goal was uh, to uh, destroy the economy and social fabric of areas uh, where the population was resisting the regime that the United States had installed, the client regime. There was no pretense of anybody else around except South Vietnamese. Also at that same time, around March 62, Kennedy started 
clandestine operations against North Vietnam, but that was kind of like a fringe operation. The attack was mainly against the South. Uh, By 1962, U.S. air and uh, firepower in South Vietnam exceeded the peak that had been reached by France uh, in its war against Indochina to try to recover it uh, 10 years earlier, which the U.S. had indeed backed. And uh, occasionally there's some mention of this. Uh, Boston Globe, as far as I'm aware, the only newspaper in the United States that mentioned wire service reports. There are a lot of wire service reports that came out this month about a meeting going on in Vietnam uh, where uh, uh, the leading U.S., one of the leading U.S. specialists on the topic, a professor at, uh, of the School of Public Health at the University of Texas, uh, released his studies on blood tests of people in South Vietnam who were living near areas where um, the U.S. had used chemical warfare, Agent Orange, uh, intensively, and found uh, dioxin levels about uh, 200 times above the average, what he called startlingly high levels of cancer-causing dioxin. Well, this is only South Vietnam, incidentally. North Vietnam was spared this particular atrocity. Uh, Although it's front-page news that somebody might figure out a way to cause few deaths but a lot of panic in the United States with uh, chemical weapons, it's no news at all that we're now uh, commemorating the 40th anniversary of our massive use of chemical warfare with unknown consequences against uh, South Vietnam, one part of an extremely uh, murderous uh, war, which also doesn't enter the discussion of genocide. Notice it's never mentioned. Uh, again, on the same principle, wrong, wrong agent, therefore a wrong story. What's the scale of the... Uh, deaths just from cancer and uh, birth deformities and so on in South Vietnam. Well, nobody knows because another principle is you don't investigate your own crimes. You only make claims about other people's crimes and posture grandly about how awful they are and how marvelous we are. Uh, So nothing's known in detail, but there has been some reporting. Uh, One of uh, the top Israeli reporters, uh, Amnon Kapeliuk, wrote and went to uh, South Vietnam in 1988 and wrote a series of stories in the Hebrew press there in which he estimated, as far as you could figure out, that there were about a quarter of a million victims of uh, cancer and what he called uh, hideous uh, birth deformities, described uh, mutilated fetuses and so on and so forth. Uh, I don't know if the number, again, it's only South Vietnam. That was 1988. They're still going on. Uh, The person I just cited says, yes, there's still new cases, uh, some of them years after uh, the termination of the chemical warfare, but it's basically none of our business uh, when you write articles about uh, uh, our uh, failure to uh, deter genocide when carried out by others. Uh, You don't talk about uh, our casual uh, implementation of mass murder uh, because uh, we're entitled to do that. That's uh, our métier, more or less. Uh, So why talk about it? Actually, there are some reports about it. I don't want to say it's never discussed. Uh, About 10 years ago, uh, the New York Times did have a report by Barbara Cresset in its science section uh, on this topic in which she pointed out that the United States is really missing an important opportunity by not studying the effects of its chemical warfare in Vietnam. Uh, The reason is that there's an almost perfect control situation uh, the North people in the North and the South have approximately the same genes, no difference between them. Uh, but only the South, which was the main target of the U.S. attack all through, 
uh, was subjected to chemical warfare. So therefore, if we sort of overcame our uh, irrational unwillingness to study the problem, we might look at this control populations and learn something that would be useful to us. Uh, and therefore, it's really silly not to uh, investigate it. Uh, you can check the article and see if there's any other reason to investigate it. Uh, the idea that we might do something about it is, of course, so outlandish that uh, nobody can even mention it, like reparations, for example. Uh, it's quite the contrary. They have to pay reparations to us. The Vietnam was required to uh, take over the debt of the client government to the United States uh, in order to be allowed to enter the world system. That means they were required to pay the costs of conquering and destroying South Vietnam before they were allowed to enter the world system, and that was considered quite reasonable as well and doesn't enter any discussions about you know, international terrorism or deterring genocide or anything else. So when this stuff was going on, you couldn't get two people in a room to talk about it. In fact, it was years before, you could, before any protest developed. In fact, the protest level was so low right through to the end, right until the day, that nobody even knows that we attacked South Vietnam, although we certainly did. As I said, this is the 40th anniversary of the public announcement of it, uh, and it went on to horrendous proportions. But since there was no protest at all, it's just disappeared from history. Uh, five or six years later, a protest did develop. I mean, by that time, you know, nobody knows how many hundreds of thousands of people were slaughtered in South Vietnam, millions of refugees, the country half destroyed, uh, war had expanded the rest of Indochina. By then, it was possible to get some protests. And among the public, it turned out there were substantial protests by the end of the 1960s. But contrary to everything you read, there was almost no protest among educated people. It was virtually non-existent. Uh, and you can see how low it is by looking at the way it's dealt with right today. So a couple of years ago, uh, a book came out by Robert McNamara, which you probably, I'm sure know of. It's in retrospect. Uh, and the reaction to the book was kind of interesting. Uh, the book was criticized by the hawks because it was treachery uh, and welcomed by the doves. That's the interesting part. It was welcomed almost across the board by the doves as vindicating their stand. Well, how did McNamara vindicate their stand? Uh, he vindicated it by saying that, by apologizing, not to the Vietnamese, there's no apology to them, but by apologizing to the American people for having caused them a lot of problems uh, because he didn't come clean early enough about the difficulties there would be in conquering South Vietnam. And he should have been more honest about that, and he apologized for that error. So that vindicates the position of the doves as they themselves see it. And that's correct. That's approximately what the level of the criticism was among educated sectors, sort of comparable to what you might have found among, say, German generals after Stalingrad, uh, when there was criticism of Hitler for tactical errors in uh, fighting a two-front war and in not coming clean to the German people about how difficult it was going to be to uh, win under those conditions. Uh, among educated sectors, that's called criticism. Uh, and they're now surprised that there isn't such a fantastic level of criticism today, uh, although even that was after six or seven years of attacking South Vietnam. You're listening to Noam Chomsky, Censorship, Free Speech, and the Media. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, 
Call us, 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or go to our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Well, the fact of the matter is uh, the 60s had a civilizing effect on the general population, and no president could dream of doing what Kennedy could easily get away with 40 years ago. Uh, or what could even be done 20 years ago. There's just way too much opposition. It's much deeper. It's much broadly spread through the population, right through the mainstream. Uh, and uh, that's a serious impediment uh, to violence. Not anywhere near enough, but it's certainly better than it was uh, in the past. In fact, I can't remember any time, at least in the, where there's been so much protest over a involving an international conflict at anything like a comparable stage. Uh, Certainly the Vietnam War was radically different. Well, let's uh, turn to uh, the current situation. I won't talk much about international terrorism. There's a lot to say about it. Uh, Let's take a look at West Asia. Uh, What's going on there? Well, the two main foci of attention. Uh, One is the Israel-Palestine conflict. The other is pending war in Iraq. Let's take a look at the first. And, uh, well, actually, let's borrow a phrase from our leader uh, who uh, is very worried about what he calls enhancing terror in Israel and Palestine, blaming it primarily on the Palestinians, in fact, almost all. Uh, So how do you go about enhancing terror in uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict? Well, uh, the United States uh, gave a good illustration of how to do this in December, in last December, uh, there was a Security Council debate over a resolution uh, initiated by the European Union uh, calling for measures to implement the U.S. Mitchell Plan to uh, reduce the level of violence by the obvious means, namely introducing international monitors. Uh, that's a good way to lower the level of violence. Worked elsewhere, could work there. The uh, U.S. vetoed the resolution. It then immediately went to the General Assembly, uh, where uh, the U.S. voted against it, uh, along with Israel. And uh, usually the U.S. and Israel vote alone against such resolutions, or in fact most resolutions. But in this case, the U.S. did pick up another couple of countries, a few uh, Pacific islands, uh, so it wasn't alone in uh, enhancing terror. I had some allies. Uh, When the U.S. votes against something, it's uh, not only vetoed, but vetoed from the public record. Uh, So there's virtually no mention of this in the press, and it'll disappear from history. Uh, This was an important period because uh, there was, it was right in the the middle of a 21-day period of what is called quiet uh, in the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict, which means only Palestinians were killed. Uh, about uh, 20 Palestinians were killed, about half of them children, uh, but there was no uh, other, very little other violence, so it was a period of quiet, uh, and that's when the U.S. intervened to enhance terror in this fashion, very efficient way to do it. It wasn't the only example. Ten days earlier, on December 5th, uh, there was an important meeting in Switzerland, which was also vetoed from history. You can search and you won't find any discussion of it, very little discussion. Uh, this was a meeting of the high contracting parties 
of the Geneva Convention. Uh, the Geneva Conventions were established uh, right after the Second World War uh, to formally criminalize the crimes of the Nazis. That was their purpose. The Fourth Geneva Convention uh, dealt with occupied territories, uh, and uh, this was a meeting of there are what are called high contracting parties, that is, parties which, of course, the United States is one, which are bound by solemn treaty to act to enforce the conventions in any circumstances. Uh, the meeting was in Switzerland because Switzerland is the country that's the repository for dealing with this. Every country in the world, with the exception of Israel, literally holds that the Geneva Conventions apply to the occupied territories. Uh, furthermore, it's, uh, it's, it is international law. Came, it's been reiterated at the Security Council without a negative vote. So, for example, in October 2001, uh, the Security Council voted without a veto, without a negative vote, uh, that the Geneva Conventions do apply to the occupied territories. Uh, the vote was 14 to 0, uh, but with one abstention. The United States abstains on those votes. It does not want to come out openly uh, opposing the conventions that were instituted to criminalize the crimes of the Nazis, so it therefore abstains, which kills them, from keeps them out of the press and the historical record and, of course, makes them inapplicable. Uh, that same thing happened on December 5th of last year. Uh, the United States boycotted the meeting, so it's, a, it's finished. It didn't matter that every participant uh, voted for a strong resolution uh, holding that the Geneva Conventions apply to the occupied territories, which entails that virtually everything the United States is doing there, meaning Israel's doing with U.S. arms, weapons, uh, economic aid, and diplomatic support, that's all illegal. Uh, illegal means technically what's called a grave breach of the uh, Geneva Conventions, which is a war crime by any standard. Uh, but it doesn't matter. The U.S. boycotted it, so therefore it's out of the discussion. And the uh, possibility of uh, reducing the level of violence by the means supported by the entire world in this case, U.S. accepted, uh, are uh, out of the discussion. Uh, that's... Uh, not the only case. This includes all the settlements you know, the, that the U.S. pays for, our tax dollars pay for them, that the U.S. protects with military aid and diplomatic support and so on. It's all gone. If you read this morning's papers, you see that uh, I'm very happy that the Israeli prime minister made what's called a concession, uh, namely he's allowing uh, Yasser Arafat to leave his little prison, the room to which he's been confined for the last couple of months, uh, just in order to make sure everyone understands what this is, yesterday, uh, what's called Israel. When, when, you, when you hear about Israeli helicopters attacking something, that means U.S. helicopters, right? Israel doesn't produce helicopters or F-16s. So when you read uh, uh, Israeli helicopters attacked something with missiles, that means U.S. helicopters provided to Israel for that purpose with the certain knowledge that that's what they're going to be used for. In this case, a couple of days ago, they wiped out the uh, headquarters of the uh, Palestinian Authority had been constructing in Gaza for potential state headquarters. There's no significance to this other than humiliation, uh, which is the core principle for dealing with the lower breeds. Every Westerner understands this. You've got to humiliate them, not just kill them, but humiliate them. It's very important. But now uh, uh, Israel, meaning the United States, made a concession. It's allowing Arafat to get out of his uh, prison, uh, to which he's been confined. 
the um, reason for letting him out is allegedly that uh, uh, they arrested some people who Israel wants him to arrest for killing uh, an Israeli minister, uh, Minister Zaevi, tourist minister. That's considered a crime. Of course, it is a crime. Uh, and the crime is not absolved by the fact that it was retaliation for an earlier crime, a couple of weeks earlier, uh, namely the murder of Abu Ali Mustafa, who's the first political leader, pure straight political leader, to have been purposely assassinated in this conflict. He was assassinated by what's called an Israeli helicopter, meaning a U.S. helicopter, and introduced political, straight political assassination for the first time. Zavi was a retaliation. Uh, but the Abu Ali Mustafa assassination isn't a crime. Uh, in fact, you might explore to see how that's been covered here. It's not a crime, and nobody is confined to his room uh, in order uh, because he didn't arrest the people responsible for that crime, which obviously wouldn't make any sense anyway because everyone knows who's responsible. Uh, they're sitting in the, uh, in the White House and in uh, the government offices in Tel Aviv, so you don't have to confine them to any rooms. You know exactly who they are. It's not question. You don't have to search for them. But it doesn't count uh, on the same principles that I've been mentioning. Who sent the helicopters? Well, for that we can primarily credit Bill Clinton, although uh, Bush has been continuing to. Uh, just to remind you, uh, the current uh, uh, conflict, the Al-Aqsa Intifada, actually began on September 29th uh, uh, of the year 2000, I'm virtually quoting the U.S. Mitchell report at this point, uh, when uh, the Israeli government, uh, the day after Sharon had uh, entered the Al-Aqsa compound, the mosque, with a big entourage of military as a pure provocation and no other purpose. The day after that, uh, Prime Minister Barak uh, surrounded it with about a thousand soldiers, uh, and when people came out of the mosque and some kids started throwing stones, uh, they shot at them uh, before it was over. Half a dozen people were killed, and that took off from there. Uh, on the first day, October 1st, September 30th, October 1st, October 2nd, uh, Israel began using U.S. helicopters to attack uh, civilian targets, apartment complexes, uh, others, uh, killing a couple dozen people. On October 3rd, Clinton uh, made the biggest deal in a decade uh, to send Israel new uh, helicopters, biggest deal in a decade, uh, in including spare parts for Apache attack helicopters that had been sent a couple of weeks earlier. Well, that's a terrific way of enhancing terror. There was no Palestinian fire at that time. You know, it was just uh, stone throwing. Uh, but um, as, as soon as our client state... Uh, offshore military base starts uh, using our attack helicopters to murder civilians, uh, the way to enhance terror is obviously to send them more. Uh, well, that's the government. Uh, the press can also cooperate in enhancing terror, namely by not reporting it. Uh, and they didn't. Uh, so if you check, you discover that although this is perfectly public knowledge, like you, know, you read in the Israeli press or the military journals and so on, the press refused to report it. Uh, notice, I'm not saying failed to report it, but rather refused, because it was specifically brought to the attention of editors of leading journals, and they essentially said this is not the right story. So to this day, it hasn't been reported, except you know, in the dissident press. Uh, Bush continued when he came into office, and so you have uh, Israeli, what are called Israeli helicopters, meaning our helicopters, 
uh, carrying out assassinations and other atrocities. Uh, how many have there been? Well, according to the Israeli press, uh, they say 48 people have been assassinated, liquidated, they say, without a trial, and another 26 uh, happened to be killed who were at the site of the liquidations. The Palestinian Human Rights Group gives the figure of 66, but let's keep to the Israeli figures. So 48 killed and uh, 26 others just happened to be around. There were more yesterday, incidentally, so it goes on. Uh, and uh, the reporter, Gidon Levy in Haaretz, gives a lot of shocking examples. Uh, but it's not, uh, and he also points out, the occasion for his article is that there was a protest to the high court, an appeal to the high court, like the Supreme Court, to rule against uh, targeted assassination, a lot of them with helicopters. And the court uh, denied the request, uh, saying uh, that it saw no reason to uh, put an end to these assassinations. Uh, so there's no, as Levy points out, there's no way to appeal to anyone in Israel. All they can do is appeal to an international tribunal, since uh, the Israeli government, meaning the U.S. government, because remember, they can act up to the point where the U.S. authorizes it, not an inch beyond. So these will go on. Uh, what, what about diplomacy? Uh, well, there is some talk about diplomacy. Right now there's a lot of talk about a Saudi Arabian plan. There's been a lot of reporting about this. Some of the reporting including the Globe, uh, did point out, and they're right to do so, that this is sort of similar to a plan that Saudi Arabia put for forth in 1981, the FAD plan, in fact, virtually identical to it. But that plan, according to the reports, uh, was killed by the Arab states who didn't want to make peace with Israel. Well, that's not quite exact, so I'll just quote from the second book that Southend was nice enough to publish for me, Fateful Triangle, this is 1983, uh, right after the first plan came along. Here's what actually happened. Try to search for it in the press. Shimon Peres, the leading dove, uh, said that the Saudi Arabian plan threatened Israel's very existence. Uh, the Labor Party's official newspaper uh, described, uh, said that the uh, Israeli government in reaction to the Saudi peace plan had sent uh, military aircrafts over Saudi Arabia uh, warning, effectively warning the United States that if the United States showed any interest in this plan, they'd blow up the oil fields. So it's a threat to the United States with U.S. Phantom jets, incidentally. That's not an unusual conjuncture that's been going on for a while. They didn't have to worry about it because the U.S. wasn't going to allow the plan anyway, but they were worried. Uh, the Labor Party Journal uh, said, described this reaction, Israeli reaction as so irrational uh, as to cause uh, uh, foreign intelligence services to uh, get out of their files their plans about Israeli bombing of the Saudi oil fields. Uh, Amos Elon, a very distinguished Correspondent described it as shocking, the Israeli reaction as shocking, frightening, if not downright despair-producing. And similar comments go over to the center-right. Uh, Yoel Marcus condemned what he called the frightened, almost hysterical response to the Saudi plan. He said it's a grave mistake. Uh, Israel's president, uh, Chaim Herzog, labor dove, he wrote about it. He said the, the, he said the real author of the Saudi plan is the PLO. And he uh, added that, uh, he said that the plan that the PLO, the Saudi PLO plan was uh, even more extreme than a Security Council resolution of January 1976, 
which he says was prepared by the PLO. He was at that time uh, Israel's UN ambassador. The plan, and there was such a proposal at the Security Council, it was proposed by the Arab confrontation states, uh, uh, Syria, uh, Jordan, and Egypt. It was, in fact, backed by the entire world, uh, by the Russians, uh, Europe, uh, Latin America, all the Arab states, uh, everyone. It was vetoed by the United States, uh, which, as usual, means vetoed from history. So that's not, none of this is discussed. Uh, What did the plan call for? Well, it it called for the full implementation of official U.S. policy, that is, UN 242, which calls for recognized borders and the right of every state to live in peace and security and so on, but uh, with a Palestinian state in the occupied territories. There were then subsequent plans from Saudi Arabia and other Arab states, Europe and others, all blocked by the United States, uh, up to the 1981 plan, which caused such hysteria. Actually, uh, Herzog's comments were not correct. The Saudi Arabian plan was not uh, any different from the January 76 plan, uh, and his claim that both of them were prepared by the PLO is almost certainly false, Uh, but it is a reflection of the hysteria among uh, Israeli doves uh, over the threat that there might be a peace proposal that maybe the U.S. would take seriously, although there was very little chance of that because the U.S. was strongly opposed to a peaceful diplomatic settlement and has, in fact, succeeded in blocking any such settlement for the past uh, 25 years, uh, which, again, would be headlines if there was any uh, interest in uh, anything but enhancing terror. Uh, Well, what was in fact the U.S. reaction? Actually, we don't really know that in detail because nothing's ever reported. Uh, Since uh, the U.S. is blocking peace and enhancing violence, it just can't be reported. And this continues up to the very present. When the first Saudi plan was proposed, the Fahd plan, in August 1981, uh, that was right at the time when Israel, with U.S. backing, uh, Israel was beginning to plan the invasion of Lebanon, which took place the following summer. Uh, The uh, purpose of the invasion of Lebanon, and the reason for the invasion of Lebanon, it was perfectly open in Israel, was uh, to try to prevent the PLO from continuing its extremely annoying policies of trying to move towards a diplomatic settlement, which which, uh, Israel doesn't really mind terror much, but they do mind negotiations and diplomacy because that might mean you have to relinquish the occupied territories. Uh, Terror you can kind of deal with. Uh, So the idea was to try to prevent the PLO from pursuing these efforts by just driving them out of Lebanon. Uh, That was the goal. Finally, I have to give credit where it's due, uh, it finally reached the American press uh, after 20 years. Uh, of perfectly clear information. I mean, if you take a look at Fateful Triangle, a lot of quotes from the Israeli, top Israeli officials and Israeli press and many more in the following years. But it did reach the New York Times on January 24th of this year. Uh, the James Bennett has an article in which he points out accurately that the Israeli government's goal in invading Lebanon and incidentally killing about 20,000 people, uh, the goal was to install a friendly regime and destroy Mr. Arafat's Palestine Liberal, uh, uh, Liberation Organization. That, the theory went, would help persuade Palestinians to accept Israeli rule in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. That's accurate. And it's nice that after 20 years, it finally made it to a kind of a, you know, 
line inside a story which nobody will notice, uh, but at least it's there. So now we can quote the New York Times. We don't have to quote massive documentation from the Israeli press and the uh, and journals and the dissident press here. Uh, all of that's, notice that that's a textbook illustration of international terrorism, right? It's the use of force to try to attain political goals uh, by intimidation and fear, actually. It goes way beyond international terrorism. It's a war crime for which you have Nuremberg trials, but it's at least international terrorism. In fact, a major case of it. Backing by the United States all the way right to the present. Uh, well, that's just a sample of what ought to appear in the press if we want to understand what's going on there, small sample. Uh, and unless we're willing to face realities like that, uh, there's no point even pretending to be talking about what's happening. Well, that's one aspect of West Asia. What about, I'll end with the next one. Uh, what about the axis of evil, uh, the next phase in the war of terror? Uh, first question is why George Bush's speechwriters decided to pick that phrase, axis of evil. Uh, I presume the reason for using the word evil uh, is because it plays to the domestic audience. At least you can reduce them to the level of uh, children reading fairy tales. So if you can sort of frighten people enough so they kind of huddle under the shadow of the heroic leader, maybe you can get them to think that the hero, semi-divine hero, is protecting them from evil, you know, like you remember when you were a kid, or ancient epics, although they at least have the uh, uh, literary quality, it's different from the plagiarism. Uh, so, and it's very important to do that, uh, because you have to somehow prevent people from watching the attack against them, which is very serious. Uh, it's serious on just straight economic grounds, but even more serious if you think of the other plans, like the militarization plans or the plans to destroy the environment, uh, all of which may really literally bring the species to an end. Uh, but you certainly don't want people to pay attention to that or the tax cuts for the rich or you know the other efforts to silence domestic independence. None of this is proper to look at. Uh, and the best way to keep people from looking at it is to have them huddling in terror. So there's big evil out there. Uh, what about the axis? I suppose the people who wrote the words know, even if Bush doesn't know what the word axis refers to, uh, there was an axis. Uh, but it surely doesn't uh, apply to Iran and Iraq and North Korea. I mean, Iran and Iraq have been at war for 20 years. And North Korea's got nothing to do with it. Uh, so whatever it is, it's not an axis. But again, that has the kind of right flavor. It suggests the Nazis and, you know, German troops marching all over the world and so on. Uh, of the whole axis of evil, there's one component of it which may actually be implemented, uh, namely an attack on Iraq. Uh, and there are reasons for that. We know for certain that the reasons have nothing to do with Saddam Hussein's crimes. The reason we know that is that during the period of his worst crimes, by far, the U.S. and Britain were supporting him and continued to support him right through the atrocities and afterwards for several years because uh, they didn't care. Uh, that included his development of weapons of mass destruction with the assistance of U.S. and British aid, dual technology assistance, which could be applied to weapons of mass destruction, as they knew. And back at that time, in the late 80s, he really was a threat, much more so than now. 
you know, now Iraq's very much weakened, but then it was a real threat. Uh, so we know for certain that uh, that's not, can't be the reason. I mean, you'll hear over and over again, as you've been hearing for a long time, that we can't let this guy survive because uh, ultimate criminal, you know, did all these terrible things, gassed his own people, etc. all of which is true, uh, just missing three little words, namely, with our support, you know, which continued. Uh, so whatever the reasons may be, it's not those reasons that we can be confident about. Uh, what are the reasons? Well, it's not very hard to figure out. Uh, Iraq has the second largest oil reserves in the world after Saudi Arabia. You'd be quite confident that one way or another, uh, the U.S. is going to act to regain control over those oil reserves and their distribution and sale, uh, and to deny them to adversaries. At the moment, France and Russia have a kind of like a privileged access to them, along with Dick Cheney and his uh, company, incidentally. But uh, the uh, uh, U.S. doesn't have uh, a privileged access to them and control over them. Uh, so something will be done to rectify that. Uh, and it's possible that they think that you know, this is an opportunity to somehow achieve this. Uh, just this morning, the Globe reports us, probably correctly, a split between CIA and State Department on one hand and the Pentagon on the other uh, as to who to uh, use to try to restore the system of U.S. control. Uh, the CIA and the State Department are uh, dealing with Iraqi generals who, which, who in fact include the ones responsible for the uh, Halabja chemical warfare and other atrocities. But that's okay, because remember, it really wasn't the atrocities uh, or the development of weapons of mass destruction that was a problem. It was disobedience. It's a real problem. Well, that uh, brings us up to the present. Obviously, a lot more to say, uh, but it illustrates very well the kind of contribution that uh, institutions like South End and uh, others like it, uh, many have spawned from it, in fact, uh, can make. They offer ways in which the public can uh, discover what's going on in the world, that includes domestically and internationally, even if it violates the principles, uh, the principle that you only pretend to be upset about other people's crimes, you obscure your own, you uh, eliminate from history anything that doesn't fit nicely. Uh, and these are really important things for people to understand, not just intellectually, even if they're just interested in simple things like survival, because at this point that's really threatened. That was Noam Chomsky on censorship, free speech, and the media. This classic from the AR archives was recorded in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 2002 on the occasion of the 25th anniversary of South End Press. South End stopped publishing a few years ago, but many of its titles have been reissued by Haymarket Books. Noam Chomsky, the legendary scholar activist, is America's leading dissident intellectual. He's the author of scores of books, including two I did with him, Notes on Resistance and Chronicles of Dissent. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. Since its inception, we've made a special effort to record and archive Professor Chomsky's work. 
To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To get copies of today's program, Noam Chomsky on censorship, free speech, and the media, and for his books, Notes on Resistance and Chronicles of Dissent, call us 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go to our website, alternativeradio.org. If you'd like a free copy of printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to Martin Folker. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.